All right, good morning. It's a privilege for us to be here this morning to worship with you, and a particular privilege for me personally to be here because uh, Jordan and Janelle, they were, or Jordan in particular, was part of my first group of students whenever I took this position at RTS Orlando, Reformed Theological Seminary. And so you always love your first group of students the most. And uh, it's true. And we remember our time very fondly. We hosted them in small group and he was an intern and uh, so on. So any, any of the goods that you see in Jordan are all because of my influence and any of the bads are because of the other pastor's influence. Uh, who's still in Orlando, and so, but it is, it actually is a great privilege to see him and Janelle uh, mature and grow, to see the welcome that they have had here. Uh, it's like your little, it's your children that you send out and you see them thriving, and uh, even just see them come back and people are greeting them and y'all like them, it seems, and uh, you've, you've got two good ones in Jordan and Janelle and their children, so it's a privilege to be here to see the fruit of their own lives among you. So uh, this morning we're going to be taking a look at uh, the tail end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, often we skip over the back part of Paul's letters. It's a bunch of names. Let's move on and get to the next one. But I'm hoping to kind of uh, squeeze the lemon of this text, if you will, and uh, see what the Lord has for us in it. So it's Colossians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 18, it is page 1170 in those pew Bibles. I uh, was told that I I suppose Gerald's going through Revelation at the moment, and I thought, well, I'm not going to steal his thunder and revealing who the beast is and all that. So we'll just do Colossians as kind of a one-off. This is the word of the Lord. uh, Tychicus will tell you about all of my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll pray for uh, this time. Lord, we ask humbly of you this morning that you would consecrate the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart for your good purposes and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since we've been in the country, there's been a very big sports contest, as you all no doubt know. We had the privilege of going to one of the Women's World Cup games while we were in Sydney. One of the great things about football slash soccer, I can do both. Uh, is that no matter if your team has Mbappe or Messi or Ronaldo or someone like that, they can't do much on their own. 
there's still 10 other players on the field. They might score a lot of goals. They might get on the news. But you have to have a full team. You don't have a goalie. You don't have a defense. And it's not going to matter if you have the MVP of the entire world on your team. Now, no doubt this is true about rugby and other sports. But one of the great things about this season of, of World Cup soccer or football is that you see that prominently, that it requires a full team effort. And the passing and the unity and the ups and the downs is not just about one player. Now, if you were to think of the MVP of the New Testament, not including Jesus, because he's the obvious MVP, but besides Jesus, if you're thinking, who's, who's kind of the number one player, who's getting all the highlights, it would be the Apostle Paul. Right, he wrote a substantial portion of the New Testament. He's key in planting churches around the whole Mediterranean. He wrote Romans, for crying out loud. Probably the you know, favorite epistle for many of you. He is the apostle of apostles. He single-handedly shaped the entire trajectory of the church. But at the end of Colossians, and at the end of so many of his letters, it's quite fascinating that he mentions his friends. Even though Paul could arguably be the one who, among anyone else, could be the lone ranger, the superstar, the one who can go it alone, who doesn't need anyone else around him because he's that good. Again, he wrote Romans, for crying out loud. He was a man of deep friendships. He passed the ball. He mentions dozens of people in his letters, some of whom are very familiar, like Timothy and Titus, others whom are less familiar, Sosthenes and Aristarchus, and so forth. Now, why does that matter? It's easy for us, and I know this is a uniquely American thing, but I think it's probably an Aussie thing as well, to think of the Christian life as just me and Jesus. Just me, my prayers and devotional time, and I do my church thing, and it's kind of just me and my own walk with Jesus. And that's not wrong, but I want to sort of labor to show you all and show myself, remind myself this morning, is that the Christian life is not a life on an island. You're not the lone ranger. You're not the MVP. It's not about just you. The Christian life is a team sport, a team sport in which we need one another. So I'm going to labor to demonstrate that from this back section of Colossians. And first we're going to take a look at how Paul describes his team, what some of the language he uses, and who does he mention, and so on. Then we'll take a look at what's the point? Why do we need one another? What role do you play in each other's lives, and then we'll talk a little bit about the risks. Any relationship, any family, any team has risks. There's ups and downs, and there's some really interesting little pictures of that in our passage. So let's begin by taking just a broad view of how Paul describes his team. And I'm not going to go sequentially verse by verse. We're going to kind of hit some of the themes here in Paul's list of greetings. First off, if you go back to verse 7, Paul says this, Tychicus is a fellow servant in the Lord. Notice he calls him a fellow servant. It's actually one word. It's like a, a with servant, someone who's a servant with me. And then verse 10, if you skip down to verse 10, he says, Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner, and he greets you. And he means that literally, actually. If you know the life of Paul, he ends up in prison multiple times. He mentions other, quote-unquote, fellow prisoners throughout his letters, including Romans he mentions Andronicus and Junia being fellow prisoners who were literally enchained with him. He also mentions Epaphras in his letter to Philemon. So he has people who are literally in the next cell or even perhaps chained to him for the gospel. 
And then verse 11, he uses one of his favorite terms. He says, my fellow workers. Notice that same word again. This is a co-worker, a colleague, a together worker. And he uses this a bunch. There's actually about 20 people in his letters that he calls fellow workers. And that's both men and women. And so it's very interesting, I think, that we often conceive of Paul's life. And there's a whole field, by the way. You go to the Christian bookstore, there's a whole Paul section, right? There's books on Jordan's shelf that's like the life and theology of Paul. Pauline epistles is its own field. So we tend to think of him as this, this guy just doing his own thing, this rock star who's just crushing it, but he's not. He mentions all of these fellow workers, fellow prisoners, fellow servants. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, Paul is rarely alone. He's alone briefly in Athens, a couple other times. But even though he commends the single life, in 1 Corinthians he praises the idea of being unattached, being unmarried, gives them more flexibility and so forth. But he's never alone, basically. Yes, unmarried, but he's always surrounded by friends. He's got co-workers helping him write his letters and so on. So that's one way he describes his ministry. He's got a whole team that he uh, loves dearly. But he has other terminology here in Colossians. Just to survey it, he mentions his beloved brother. That is that term. He calls Tychicus a faithful minister. He refers to Onesimus here as our, our faithful and beloved brother. He describes Epaphras as a servant of Christ and mentions other brothers and sisters. It's family language. You catch that. He says, we are brothers. We are sisters. Not biologically, but in the family of Christ. In fact, the number one image of the church in the New Testament is a family that transcends our DNA. And notice he calls it our. We are together in this one family. Moreover, twice, uh, he mentions individuals like Epaphras in verse 12, who he says are one of you, uh, which I think is quite interesting. It's easy to think of Paul's ministry as kind of like, they're the, they're the Aussie Navy SEALs of ministry. And like, ministry is done by the pastors who so get all the credit. They do all the stuff. He says, no, we had a little intern. Epaphras is one of you, one of the Colossians that we trained up and nurtured, sent him out. It's great to see your involvement in raising up the next generation of church leaders. And then lastly here, he mentions in verse 15, it's quite an interesting, it's very easy to just sort of skip over these things, but I want you to slow down and pay attention to these details. He says, this greet Nympha and the church in her house. Paul mentions by name 16 women in his letters. Now, that doesn't mean they're all preaching or anything necessarily. We can have our debate about that. But he refers to these 16 women. I'm just going to name them for you. It's quite fascinating. I'm the father of three daughters. This matters to me in a great way. And husband of one wife. Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Trephena, Trephosa, Persis, Julia, Nearest's sister, Chloe, Yodia, Syntyche, those two had a bit of a spat. It's quite hilarious. They, end up, they had some sort of argument there in Philippians. He says, I hope they work it out. But the fact that he mentions that in Philippians means they're really important. Nympha, the one mentioned here, Lois, Eunice, and Aphia. Sixteen women, uh, and that's about as many men as he mentions by name. Now, we can have our debates about the implications of that. But my main point this morning is that Paul values the women he considers co-laborers. I don't think it's a uniquely American Presbyterian thing 
that so often life in the church can feel like a bit of a boys' club. And again, we can have our debates about ordination and preaching and so on, but let us not forget that the women in the body of Christ matter immensely, and they matter to Paul. Sixteen of them he mentions in his letters that he is in prison with, and he values immensely because they matter to the cause of Christ. So women in the room and my own family, you matter to the gospel of Christ. Before we move on then, let us just make notes of how Paul describes his team. Yes, the pastors of this church and the elders and the deacons and the ushers and the children's church message deliver. I was joking, I was like, I'd rather preach than have to do that. The children's message and the staff and those making the tea and all that, all matters. But every single one of you have some role to play in the body of Christ. Some square centimeter that God has put you on earth to do something in the body of Christ. If anyone in the history of Christianity had the right and the ability to go it alone, it would be Paul. It would be Paul the Apostle. But he's nothing without his friends. The church is nothing without all of its parts. It's beautiful that I get to be here. My family, you know, we're from a church in Central Florida, 14 time zones away. You know, different cultures, different politics, similarly dangerous animals. (laughs) But we are one church. One pillar of the living God, and it's a delight to just be part of this international thing. So that's Paul's team. That's how Paul describes his team, but why? Why does it matter to him that he has friends? Sometimes even frenemies, actually, if you know that terminology. Some folks he kind of butts heads with. Why does it matter? Let's move on and see that. How do these friends, how do these brothers and sisters impact Paul? Why, in other words, is church a team sport? And the key theme in this passage is that we build one another up. Let's see that in verse 8 first off. He's talking about Tychicus again here in verse 8. He says, look, I have sent him from where Paul is to the church at Colossae for this very purpose. Which is telling us, pay attention. This is why. He says it's this, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Notice it's a two-way street. And in fact, verse 11, he adds to that, they've been a comfort to me. Paul says he sends one of his beloved friends to this church because he can't be there. He can write a letter, but that's not enough. He wants personal contact. He says, I'm sending him to you to encourage you and also for you to encourage us. Paul has this running theme in his letters, in fact, if you pay attention. 2 Corinthians, for instance, 1 Thessalonians. He's like, look, I want to know how you're doing. I want to make sure you're growing. And I want you to know that I'm okay. You've probably heard rumors that I've been thrown in prison for the 14th time, and I'm always getting beaten up. Everywhere I go, a fight breaks out. And I want you to know that I'm okay, and I want to know how you're doing, because you matter to me and I matter to you. It's this beautiful picture. Again, you kind of have to read between the lines of how church is supposed to work. And we got a taste of that last night around 7 p.m. We roll in to town, and we go to our Airbnb, and long story short, we very quickly left our Airbnb. And some tears, let's just say some tears were shed. So we're currently homeless, by the way. But I'm texting Jordan. And I'm like, uh, this, this is bad. Can we come to your house? And we go to Jordan and Janelle's house, and there's 80 dumplings and pavlova. Uh, is that right, pavlova? Um, something like that. A lot of sugar. And uh, we crash on their floor in all corners of their house. And I'm like, you know, this is not a great situation, but it's a really good sermon illustration 
I'm going to use this tomorrow because of the picture in that moment of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be encouraged. I'm supposed to be encouraging him, and they're the ones hosting us. I'm sleeping on his living room floor. It's a great picture of the, the idea, this truth that we need one another. You have been put here to encourage others, to build others up. You've been also put here to be encouraged. Now he moves on in verse 12 and describes another way that we need one another, and that's for our own spiritual edification. Notice what he says about Epaphras here in verse 12. Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And we've gotten a picture of that with our missionary friends this morning. So that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. We need friends and brothers and sisters in the Christian life to pray for us, to invest in our lives so that we can grow and mature because you can't do it by yourself. You need people who are sort of shouldering your burdens, comforting you with the comfort they've been comfortable with, helping you mature, teaching you God's Word, or even just peers who spur one another on to remind us in the tears and in the stress and the ups and downs, sometimes hopelessness, that others are in this with you, that they care for, they want to see you grow. There's another little fascinating glimpse of this in verse 17, right before he finishes the letter. Now, I find this just really interesting. Paul says he gives the Colossian church something to say to one of his buddies. It's almost like getting the Napoleon on, like, all right, I want you all to go and push him here. He says this, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It's almost like he's calling on the whole church to give him a little kick in the pants. Say, look, you've got a calling. You've got something you've been put here to do, so let's get on with it. And we want to see you do what God has called you to do. We sometimes need friends in the church to spur us on, to push us to help us accomplish what God has gifted you and everyone, every Christian, has been gifted with something to serve the church. David, King David, had his Jonathan pushing him and correcting him and challenging him. Jordan, Michael Jordan, had his Pippin. I don't know if that translates. Y'all like basketball enough. You know Jordan and Pippin. Bono has Edge, maybe a little closer to home. Harry had both Hermione and Ron. He wouldn't be Harry Potter without those two. Captain America had Black Widow. Frodo had Sam. We need one another to push us to grow. So I want to ask you the question then this morning, sort of a take-home, is do you do that for others? Are you investing in those around you? And are you allowing others to invest in you? Are you opening yourself up to be pushed, to be encouraged, to be helped, to be vulnerable? It wasn't easy to send the text to my former intern and say, hey, can you save the day? It's not easy, perhaps even more so for men in the room. And so I want to give you a little bit of a take-home assignment. Now, don't do it today. If you do it today, they're going to know I told you to. So wait until tomorrow, and they will have forgotten. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually just sincerely encourage someone in your life, perhaps someone at Donville Perez. Not with an ulterior motive, not making it weird. Just be sincere. You're a great friend. Did you know that? You're just a fantastic friend. Or, you know, you're amazing at hospitality. You're so great with hosting people. And I know you don't get a lot of credit for it, but it's fantastic. You're the cool uncle 
And I appreciate that about you. You actually invest in the next generation. I know that you don't love your nine to five and you feel like it's just a bunch of spreadsheets and deadlines, but it matters. You do your work with integrity. I see it and you're building the kingdom even if you don't feel like it. You're really gifted at this area. And I love seeing God use that in your life. Now, I know it's hard, but you're not British. If you were in England, it would never happen. You're in Australia, you can do this. You can actually go and sincerely encourage someone else without the sarcasm, without undercutting it in some way. I can say that because I lived in England for a few years. Don't be afraid. Don't hesitate to speak these kinds of encouraging words. Yes, it's great to pray about it. Paul mentions that. But speak it. There's a funny online comedian. He's a Christian comedian, YouTube comedian, which I guess is a thing now. And uh, he says, the, the greatest lie in the Bible, which is a great setup for a joke, by the way, the greatest lie in the Bible is that Jesus was 30 years old and had 12 close friends. Now, if you are in that age bracket or high, you realize how, how that just hits, hits home. It's like, yeah, it is hard to have friends. And I need people to encourage me, to invest in me. A text. Like today, I'm, I'm of the age, I'm past 30, I'm past 40, actually. I get one text from somebody, a guy friend of mine, and it's not asking me a church thing. It changes my whole week. Like, oh, wow, you, you just wanted to say hello? And like, how are you doing? Like, you did that? Well, you don't just want something from me? It's amazing. It's totally game-changing. We need to be encouraged, and you need to go and encourage others. But relationships involve risk. They involve vulnerability. They involve putting yourself out there and, and things not always going well. We get two interesting pictures of the risk of real relationships, real relationships in the church, in the body of Christ, in this passage. Now, I'm going to have to tease them out a bit, but they're quite fascinating. Friendships and church life bring sinners together, and sinners can hurt one another. But there's grace in working through these real relationships. And the first picture we get in this passage is of a broken friendship. Let me show you. Look at verse 14. Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician, who greets you, but then he adds this as does Demas. You see that, as does Demas. Then we usually just move on, right? It's fine, don't know who that guy is. No Luke, it's pretty popular. Don't know who Demas is. Philemon, he mentions Luke and Demas again. He says, Demas and Luke are my fellow workers. So he and Demas were, were boys. They were good. They were on the same team, friends. You with me on that? But you know what happened to Demas? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. If you want to turn there, that's fine. This is Paul's last writing. He knows death is at its door. He's giving his sort of final instructions to his closest mentee, Timothy. And there's this heartbreaking line in verse 10. It says this, Demas, his buddy, the one who's in our passage, Demas in love with this present world, we don't know if it's greed, we're not sure what it is, has deserted me. Paul's near the finish line of his life and one of his closest friends leaves him. And you can feel the emotion that they had done so much together and Demas gets near the finish line and bounces. He leaves Paul behind and that can happen. That can happen in church life where we don't know exactly what caused them to have this rift. 
real, though. It's sad. It happens. But it's better to have tried and lost than to not have that relationship. So yes, gospel ministry, gospel life in the church can involve broken friendships. And no doubt some of you have been hurt deeply by Christians. doesn't mean they're not Christian anymore. It just means that something happened. The older you get, the more you realize that that's reality. It's sad, but it's still better to try. There's a good news. I'm not going to land on that. That would be a terrible place to end a sermon. <laughs> there's, a, there's a mended friendship as well. So look at verse 10 of our, of our section here. You'll know this character. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, punch him in the face. Punch him in the face. Now, why would I say that? Well, he doesn't say that. He says, welcome him. Now, why would I tongue-in-cheek say punch him in the face? You know anything about Mark and what happened with Mark and Paul? Well, in Acts chapter 15, they had a bit of a tiff. Let me just read it to you. Barnabas, we just saw him, right? So that was Paul's mentor. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So here's Mark. This is the Mark that wrote the gospel that bears his name. So Barnabas is like, hey, let's take Mark with us and go on our next journey. All right, so this is the second missionary journey. But here's the problem. Paul didn't want to. Why? Because Mark had abandoned them previously in Pamphylia. Paul's like, I don't like that. I don't trust this guy. Bad apple. I'm not going to waste my time with him. And so what happens to Paul and Barnabas? They work it out. And they hug, and everything's happy. No. This is one of those weird parts of Acts that sort of raises the whole question of should you try to do everything the way Acts does it? Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. People who always tell you, like, oh, I want to do things the way Acts does. I'm like, well, who's going to strike you dead when you cheat your taxes? Here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas don't agree on this. They don't sort it out. What happens? A sharp disagreement arose, and they split. So far as we can tell, that was it for Paul and Barnabas. They split over Mark. Whatever Mark did, whatever his lack of maturity was, we don't know exactly. But he caused such a rift that Paul, who's a pretty big deal, and Barnabas, who's also a pretty big deal, they part ways. We don't know exactly. You know, Paul mentioned them later, but we don't know if they get back together again. Barnabas takes Mark, goes his separate way. Paul takes Silas, goes his own way. It's this bizarre chapter in the history of the church. A massive rift in two relationships, Paul and Mark, Paul and Barnabas. You with me on that? Well, how does the story end? Philemon 24, uh, so do Mark and Aristarchus, my fellow workers, send you greetings. Somehow along the way, some years later, Paul and Mark get back on the same page. We don't know exactly how they were reconciled, but it's a beautiful picture that they were, which then takes us back to 2 Timothy. Remember, that's the final writing of Paul. Death is on, you know, on the doorstep. He knows he's about to go and meet Jesus. This is the last thing he writes. He's just mentioned Demas. Okay, so that was verse 10. Demas, the one who abandoned him. The next verse, here's what he says. Go grab Mark and bring him to me because he is very useful to me. In ministry. This story, this sad, peculiar story of Paul's split with Mark has a happy ending where he's about to die. And who does he want? He wants Mark. Because the grace of Christ in real family relationships can do amazing, amazing things. But it requires vulnerability. It requires investing in something that matters, the advancement of God's kingdom. Any team. And you see this in sports. 
but you see it in the church. Any team that matters, any team that has real stakes, where what you're doing matters is going to have these kinds of conflicts. That's what makes the team real. We're going to butt heads and not see eye to eye. And the grace of Christ enables us to work through it. You come out the other end better than you were before. No doubts if you've lived long enough, you've had these kind of stories where you had a falling out with someone, and then you, it might take 10 years, it might take a year. You work it out, it's better than it was before. You have to be willing to risk real relationships. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, let us be reminded from the end of this letter that no man and no woman and no child and no youth is an island in the Christian life. Not even Paul. Not even Paul was an island. The Christian life, your Christian life, this church in this place is a team sport of fellow servants, fellow workers, perhaps even one day fellow prisoners who must encourage one another, build one another up to invest, to take the risks to need one another. And what that means is sometimes you've got to put your phone down, you've got to close your laptop, and you've got to go invest in relationships. You've got to show up when your friend needs you in sorrow or in joy. And so through tears and laughter, through ups and downs, it is a privilege, a privilege to be a part of something like that. On August 20th, the World Cup will end. Somebody will be the winner. Maybe the Matildas, we don't know. They got to win a big game tomorrow night. And Jordan's pulling for the Matildas. I asked him that. He made the right decision. But every country, they're going to go home, and we go back. We had a little taste of a global community in the World Cup. It's great. But they go back, and the countries continue fighting. The church of the living God is, I would argue, the one remaining place where we get a taste of this of relationships, of a family that transcends race and ethnicity, that transcends wealth, poverty, and class, that transcends everything that can divide us. is bigger than any one of us. We are part of something that spans the globe, that spans time. And do you realize how amazing that is? It's a little taste of it just for my family this morning from Florida. It's like, oh, wow. They worship the same Jesus on the other side of the planet where everyone's upside down. (laughs) And one day, brothers and sisters, your names too, if you cling to Christ by faith, your name will also be found written. Little shout-outs and greetings to you all. And a better thing, as good as Colossians is, a better thing in the book of life. Whereas fellow servants, we long for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ looks at us and says, Well done, good and faithful servants. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you call us into this miracle of your church, that despite all odds, breaks all boundaries, unites a diverse people together for a common cause. And I pray that each person would leave here this morning uh, encouraged to invest in relationships to be about using the gifts to build others up that we would see ourselves as a team that spans the globe, that pursues your kingdom purposes, pursues love for you with all heart, mind, and soul. We give you thanks for this time this morning and pray that as we are sent out, we would be encouraged for what you have called us to do. In Christ's name, 
Amen. If you're able, please stand for one final song of response.